Hello and welcome to the Potential Psychology Podcast. I'm your host, Ellen Jackson, and it's my mission to share the science of human behaviour in a practical, fun and inspiring way. In each podcast episode, I interview an expert from the fields of psychology, well-being, leadership, parenting or high performance. I pick their brain to uncover what they know about living well, what tips do they have for you and I, and I quiz them about how they apply their expertise in their own life. Join me as we discover simple, science-backed ways to live, learn, flourish, and fulfil your potential. Hello, and a very big welcome back to the Potential Psychology Podcast and our seventh 10-week season on the air. I'm your host, Ellen. This is episode 62, and we're back from a few weeks break, and we have some exciting developments for the show this season, one of which is our very first collaboration. So the entire of season seven of the Potential Psychology Podcast is brought to you by the Wellbeing Evidence and Horizons Conference. What is the Wellbeing Evidence and Horizons Conference? Well, it is a very exciting two-day event being held in Melbourne, Australia on the 28th and 29th of April 2020. So that's only six months away, would you believe? And at this conference, experts from all corners of the globe will be jetting in to discuss and debate established, groundbreaking and on-the-horizon approaches to all things human well-being. So from nutrition to physical activity to public space to mindfulness and meditation, the gut and microbiomes, work, sleep, And of course, our all important leisure time. So these are all topics that we love to cover here on the show, and they're going to be discussed and debated by this huge collection of experts at the Wellbeing Evidence and Horizons Conference in April 2020. And I'll be telling you a little bit more about the conference in each episode of the podcast for this season. And we'll be bringing you some of the conference speakers as guests over the course of the season too. So this is going to give you a taste of the calibre of experts who will be at the event and also the breadth of science-based wellbeing topics that they're going to be exploring. So a little taster for each episode of the season, which I'm excited about. But if you can't wait until next week to learn a little bit more, you can pop over to their website, which is weh.org.au to explore the program, check out the speakers, and of course, register to attend. Okay, so what do we have? Not what, who? Who do we have as our guest for our first episode of season seven? Well, I mentioned just before that exercise is one of the all important components of well-being. And if you listened in to last season, you might have caught my very first solo episode on the show about motivation and why everything you know about it is probably wrong. Well, today we're combining the two topics, exercise and motivation, and exploring the all important question, how do you get yourself to exercise? How do you motivate yourself? Or in the case of our guest, how do you get back into exercise after a break? And what impact does this have on your longevity, your happiness, and your well-being. My guest today is Dr. Gordon Spence, and Gordon and I studied together at the University of Sydney in the 
early 2000s. And our paths have crossed a few times in the years since then. And then in July of this year, we ran into each other at the World Congress on Positive Psychology at the Conference or Convention and Exhibition Centre, I think it's called, in Melbourne. And one of those hello, how are you, quick catch-up conversations quickly escalated into a conversation that traversed a number of topics. And it was all triggered by Gordon mentioning that he's working on a book. And I really wanted to try and recapture a little of that conversation for you, our lovely in audience because I walked away from it feeling so inspired and so engaged and I'm hoping that you might too. So welcome Gordon. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Ellen. I'm excited to be able to have this conversation with you and record at the same time for the benefit of others because I really did just walk away from our conversation. Just go, you know, it was one of those engagement type moments as we talk about it in psychology where time stands still. I think we almost missed lunch as a consequence. I think we did. Yeah. And so we know that engagement and being so absorbed in something like that is good for our well-being. So hopefully we can <laughs> spread a little of that around to others today. Mm -hmm. Can we just start, can you tell us a little bit about how you, what you do now and how you came to be here? Because you were not a psychologist by birth, were you? No, not a psychologist by birth. I've had two lives. That's the way I often describe it to people. I had a, a first life that was in the corporate world. I had a succession of roles for about 12, 13 years that started in retail banking uh, and then morphed into a career in international trade. Um, trade finance, imports and exports, basically. And it was fine. It was fine. For 12, 13 years as a young person, it did the job. But it, increasingly across that period of time, I just recognised in myself that what I was doing wasn't particularly satisfying, not particularly fulfilling. So I had an epiphany at two o'clock one morning. That's generally when epiphanies tend to strike and decided I needed to go back to school. So to cut a very long story short, I decided to do an undergraduate degree at the age of 31 at the University of Wollongong and I studied a psychology. After doing that, I decided that I wasn't going to follow a clinical pathway, that I was interested in working in other areas that weren't clinical psychology focused. And so I ended up tripping over this thing called coaching and positive psychology in the beginning of the 2000s. And that led me to do a master's in coaching psychology, which is where I'm Yes. And then because I'm a great fan of self-flagellation, the body is evil and must be punished, I decided to do a PhD at the same time. So I did both of those things kind of concurrently and finished at the end of 2006 with, um, with all of that done and then took on an academic position with first the University of Sydney and then currently with uh, University of Wollongong where I'm head of students at Sydney Business School. So I'm a psychologist in a business school, which is a really interesting place to be and finding that to be quite interesting with lots of exciting things on the go uh, at the moment, which is really good. So, yeah, that's kind of a bit of a potted history of where I've come from and where I am now. Yeah, and fascinating. I'm actually a psychologist who started with a commerce degree, so I sort of did it in reverse. No, right. There you go. <laughs> and equally, you know, I think coming to that point of getting registered as a psych and then discovering that, well, not discovering, but really fully realising that clinical psych wasn't the thing for me either, but happening upon coaching psychology at exactly the same time. So there's some lovely parallels there. Gordon, you've been working in that field and, and in the field of executive coaching, leadership, 
and academia at the same time for several years. And when we met, you mentioned that you were working on a book. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is and how it came to be? Well, perhaps, probably this is the second epiphany I've had in my life where, so I, a couple of years ago, I turned 50. And I suppose, uh, you know, as you do when you approach 50, you start reflecting on all sorts of things. And I certainly did that. And uh, when I was about 48, I realized that for a number of years, I had uh, sort of separated from one of the things that was a great enjoyment for me in my life, which was running. So I'd been a runner as a much younger person into my late teens and 20s and really loved it and had drifted away from it. So I got to the age of 48 and I thought, no, I'm actually not happy with this. Uh, I'd gained some weight. I didn't feel like I was necessarily particularly healthy. So I decided that I would try to run another marathon before I turned 50. Nothing like setting an ambitious goal. Yeah, exactly. So I um, I got myself busy and basically swept all excuses aside and started to establish a regular running practice again, which was great. And, you know, which is an interesting thing about that, of course, is that all the excuses that you put in the way of these things are often just, you know, fabrications, mental fabrications. And it certainly was the case for me. And so I was finding that I was getting more into it. I was able to do more. I was certainly enjoying it more. And I was deciding to do other things and take on other challenges. So not only did I set a goal of doing a marathon, but I also set a goal of doing an ultra marathon before I turned 50. So they were my two goals. Again, to cut a long story short, I got involved in doing that. And as I did, what I quickly started to realize that starting to take on some substantial challenges like that means that you've got to get a little bit serious about it. And I quickly learned that there was a whole lot I had to learn because I wasn't a 20-year-old and I wasn't able to just naturally go out and run just on the basis of my youth. I actually had to get a bit smart. And I made quite a few mistakes and really started to I guess, revel in that a little bit and revel in the learning that was coming from it. So as a process of doing that, I just got more and more intrigued into how engaging with a physical pursuit like that really became a journey into myself. I really had to begin to understand myself a little better, certainly understand my physiology, and in another way, understand how I ticked biologically. And I just been fascinated by that. And so again, this is a process that's unfolded now over four or so years. As I got more and more into it, I became more and more reflective about it and started to well the first thing I did was I started a, a Facebook page, which I called Gordy Sixfoot. And it was just basically a diary for myself of this journey that I was going on. And I invited a few friends in and they, you know, they were free to pay attention to things I was posting or not. It just so happens that most of them have shown some interest. And it gave me a way of just, I guess, processing what I was doing. So the reason I'm telling you all this is that out of that came this idea for writing a book. Because I was becoming struck by my own return to exercise and I was also thinking about the, that process for others and I was particularly interested in, you know, when people do return to exercise and you hear these stories all the time, people that have gone through their 30s and 40s and not done terribly much, got the middle age spread, the muffin top, whatever you want to call it, and then, you know, all of a sudden they get busy. They get busy on their health and fitness because they can see their mortality and, you know, it's important that they do something about it. Mm -hmm. And I knew how I uh, was answering questions about why I got back into it because I love running. 
because I wanted to be a positive role model for my children, because I had things that I wanted to still accomplish. But I was interested in why that, why other people might do it. And so without thinking about it a whole lot, I just went out and started interviewing people about this process. And the book is centered around that. Um, there's a number of chapters in there about ordinary everyday people who have just returned to exercise and talk to me about why, what they want to get from that and what their vision is for the future. And it's just been a delightful process. And as you know, it's, it's completed in process of trying to get it published at the moment. But I've just found the whole thing just really fascinating. So that's the sort of the backdrop for it. Yeah. And can I step you back for a moment? Because one of the things you said early on about that realization of wanting to get back into exercise, knowing you've got a history of past success, so knowing that you could do it, Mm. but having all of those excuses, which you said, you know, largely fabricated, and we know they often are. What were the sort of excuses for you? What were the things that you found yourself putting in the way of getting this done? Oh, too busy. Mm -hmm. Um, Your career. So what I realized as a result of doing it and then writing the book and reflecting on, because I tell my story and reflecting on my story around returning to exercise was that I told myself I didn't have the time. I told myself that I didn't have an hour, an hour and a half to go out and run, you know, a couple of times a week, that that was an impossibility. And that if I did it, things would get missed, money would not be earned and all all the ramifications Uh, and implications of that for not just me, but for family. I mean, you know, these are the the dark imaginings that that swirl around in your head when you're sort of believing your own nonsense. So it was a lot about that. It was a lot about I need to keep on top of everything. There was this fear that all the minutes of the day were so precious that time could not be found for anything as luxuriant and self-indulgent as physical exercise. Now, reflect on that now, Alan, it just seems like a bloody nonsense, but it was what was happening really. And I'm sure it's a very familiar story for many of us. I mean, it certainly resonates with me, whether Mm. it's about the running on the exercise or other things that we know we should be doing. Yeah. And it wasn't that I wasn't trying within that sort of 20 year period. I was, I had flirtations with it. And this past success thing that you talked about, yeah, that factored in as well, because, you know, I was, I'd run some decent times and different things when I was a you know, in my 20s. And there was a standard to which I guess I was always then measuring myself. I wanted to get back to that sort of standard. That was part of it. I mean, by and large, I love running because I just like the idea and I like the feeling of being able to go out and run and run strongly for a sustained period of time. There's a, there's a you know, people talk about the runner's high. It's a part of that. There's something about that level of physical competence that is intoxicating and you know and I do like that so running for me is an intrinsically motivating thing but that doesn't mean that there weren't some other things that were weighing me down such as will I be able to run like that again and if I can't then that's demotivating Mm -hmm. so that would be some of the things that would scuttle attempts to resume as such same as illness you know getting flu you know after you've been running for a couple of months you know, it's like oh god you know put in all this work and now i have to just start all over again so there's a succession of these starts and misstarts and procrastination and failure to meet expectations and just a horrible mess of stuff that got in my way 
And that, uh, what's fascinating to me about that is that complex interplay between what goes on in our minds, mm. the fact that we can know stuff logically and yet still not act on it, or we can have that intrinsic motivation to do something. So you can still have a passion for something and be intrinsically motivated by it and want to be able to do it. And yet we still kind of create these roadblocks mm. that will consciously or unconsciously will get in the way of doing things that we even want to do. You know, this is not like just trying to motivate yourself to do something you don't want to do. This is actually trying to make happen something that you really do want to do. That's right. It is a complex interplay. And I think for, for any of your listeners that know anything about self-determination theory and different sub-theories within that particular perspective, we are a bundle of motivations. We are a bundle of reasons for doing things. And sometimes those reasons are, are fa fairly, if I can use the word, pure in the sense of being intrinsically motivated, but sometimes they're motivated by a bunch of other things. You know, a sense of pressure from others, a sense of wanting to impress other people and, and, and gain external recognition for what we're doing. Yeah, there's all these things that sort of turn up in the motivational melting pot that can really um, muddy the water. So, yeah, there was, a, there was a lot of that going on for me. And I guess it was that conversation, that sort of that life stage piece, a conversation I started having with myself, which was, well, you know, I suspect that I'm just telling myself a crap story. And there's something missing here that needs to be here. And so I got busy with it. And it was much easier to get going than, than I thought. And do you think it was that context of that conversation you were having with yourself? So, you know, whether it's about mortality or, or just, you know, an age thing, I think there is something about, you know, I say this is a almost 47-year-old, you know, you sort of start to realise. For me, it was at the age of 45 when I went, you know, if this is the halfway mark, what am I going to do yeah. part two? And this is the thing that's really, really fascinating to me. Part of my thinking was also about, well, what do I actually want to be like in 25 years? You know, what, how do I want to be ageing? Uh, when I get to 70, 75, what do I want to be like? Because you see these days, you see a lot of people getting around on mobile scooters and, you know, sort of various apparatus to try and assist them just to get about the world and stay mobile. I just think that this is a, it's a bit of a damning indictment on the way in which our society seems to be configured at the moment. I mean, I, I went through a, a suburb uh, the other day uh, close to where I live and there was, a, there was a shop that only sells mobility scooters. Mm. That's their stock in trade is mobility scooters. I just think that's such a, a shame. So for me, it was a, a very much conversation about how do I want to age? What does a healthy, successful aging look like for me? And one way or another, all the people that I interviewed in the book would talk about healthy aging and what they wanted their lives to be like. Um, so that was part of it. And I guess as part of that conversation that I was also having, I was reflecting on role models that I've had in my life. And one of those role models is my dad. So my dad just turned 86. Now, last year at the age of 85, he kicked off his competitive rowing career. As you do. I'm serious, yeah. <laughs> at, a, at a master's event at the International Regatta Centre in Penrith. You know, one cold winter's morning, there he was in a rowing four about to set off and kickstart his rowing career. 85. By the way, he won the rowing club's novice of the year last year as well, <laughs> which was rather amusing. Um, but, you know, I guess for me, my dad has always been an active soul. 
So I interviewed him as part of the book as well because I wanted to start out by going, well, here's a, an example of a man that's really been focused on maintaining health and fitness for the course of his life, never really had a disconnection from exercise. So I like that contrast to the other stories in the book. And what I also did too, just to sort of dive into the book a little bit more, is when I was talking to people about why did you get back into exercise? What is it that got you here and what do you want? And they would talk about health, healthy aging. After seeing my dad row last year, I thought, hang on a minute, everybody's talking about what they want to be like when they're 70, that they want to age well. That's funny. I know a bunch of guys, an 85-year-old, my dad, and then three guys in their 70s who are living the sort of life that these people are saying that they want. You know, they're living an active life beyond the age of 70. So why don't I interview the rowing crew? So I interviewed the rowing crew, not about return to exercise, but about what's life like as an active, fit, older person. You know, what do you get out of it? What does it deliver to you? So again, there's another contrast in the book around that as well. So that was a lovely process. Yeah. And what did you learn from them about what it is to live that life that others are aspiring to in your 70s and 80s? For those guys, there's a real sense of, satisfaction, fulfillment they get from being able to just live into their later stages and be able to do stuff, mm. be able to do it, to be able to do it with some ease, not perfect ease because they have their, you know, their creaks and their pains and aches and all of that, but they're able to do stuff that many of their contemporaries and peers are not. Plus also they love getting comments from nurses and medical practitioners and people they have to have to see to say things to them like, you know, you've got the body of a young man kind of thing. Yeah, they don't mind a bit of that either. <laughs> um, but, but it's really for them about a satisfaction that they've been able to invest their energy in ways that continues to pay even for them now, mm. in ways that they see others not reaping those rewards. So, yeah, so it was, it was kind of a, a, about that mainly. So lots of lovely contrasts in there. Mm. And I, I do mm-hmm. like the other question I was going to ask was about, you know, because we know as, as psychologists, especially in the coaching psychology field, you know, the importance of setting goals, of having that kind of what we might call the fuzzy vision or, or just that mm. sense of where I want to be. So for you, for those people that you interviewed in the book, you know, being actively able and consciously projecting yourself forward to say, what do I want life to look like in maybe exactly. 25 years' time? And the other thing about that for those guys in the rowing crew is that they are still setting goals. They are still just be under no illusions. These guys are still competitive athletes. They still believe they want to compete. In fact, it's the competition and being part of the competition that, that matters a lot to them, that they're still able to do that and they, they chase that. So it's not about them having reached their goals. They're still setting goals. Mm. They're still very actively engaged in life in that way. And as I say, the people I interviewed in the book, they really were, were reflecting on or projecting towards that as a, an aspiration for themselves. So the fact that they're in the book does not mean that they've necessarily met some standard in terms of having succeeded in that way, but that is their intention. That's what they're working towards. So, yeah, it is, it's nice to be able to contrast those different life stages in that way. Mm. One other thing I just wanted to add, add to that, and that was how much they talked about, and this, you know, is 
perhaps particular to the rowing crew or this particular rowing club, but they talked a lot about the social connection. They talked a lot about being able to do it together. They talked a lot about the motivational importance of that so that being part of a team and a crew gives you a responsibility to address and be accountable so, you know, they often tell stories about how on a, on a bad cold winter's morning, they might not, you know, want to get up and might want to roll over and hit the alarm snooze button. But because Jane and Bob are out the front tooting the horn, you know, they can't do that. They've got to get up. They're going to, they're going to be the weak link if they don't. And how that's a great thing because it keeps them going, but also because it's an important social network that they also need, not just for being rowers, but for being community members and uh, functioning well. Yeah, just living well. And Mm. it goes to that notion of the complexity of motivation there as well, doesn't it? That, you know, we can have an external motivator like somebody tooting the horn or we can have those, you know, what we might call the interjected motivation of of feeling like we ought to do it because we have a responsibility to other people Mm. whilst also maybe having the intrinsic motivation, but maybe that wasn't the bit that really kicked in on a cold winter's morning when the alarm went off. Yeah, yeah. And, and and I think that certainly when I spoke to all of them, it wasn't that interjected motivation, that sense of needing to please others was the driver. Um, those guys talk about a love of their sport, mm. absolute love of their sport. I mean, for them, it's the best sport that there is to participate in. And for older athletes, there's nothing better because unless you have poor technique, you cannot hurt yourself. Mm other than falling out of the boat and drowning, um, you just can't hurt yourself. It's no impact. It's brilliant from a cardiovascular point of view. There's so many things about it that they just love. So, you know, there there was a lot that they had to say about that as well, a deep love of the thing that they are involved in. And that was by and large, the, the driving force for all of them. But of course, we are a bundle of motivations, as you say. Yeah. And it's fascinating too, because you mentioned for yourself, you know, there have been an existing love for running, the experience mm. of running. What, what would you say, or did any stories come out from others that you interviewed about how you tap into perhaps a form of exercise or something that you want to do that you don't have an existing love for or you're not aware of an existing love for? Yeah, well, this is this is one of the things that, that I used the book to flesh out for myself and get clear about. Uh, so I wrote a self-help section in the book and what I wanted to do, because this is one of the other things that I've noticed when it comes to health and fitness advice, health and fitness prescriptions, we generally are bombarded with this stuff. I mean, if you sat someone down and asked them about, you know, what they should be doing to live a, a healthy life, they'll be able to tell you about, you know, five serves of veggies, two serves of fruit, how much they should hydrate and what sort of level of exercise they should be doing. Most people will be able to have a stab at that. But so few people do it, right? So it's few the people. Gap is, isn't it? It's this is massive gap, and so what I didn't want to do was start to get all prescriptive around that. Probably the listeners need to know that that part of my interest in this area has led me now to be studying a Bachelor of Exercise and Sports Science, which I'm halfway through. So I'm developing more and more understanding about some of the things we're talking about. So I didn't want to be that. I didn't want to be prescribing stuff, what I wanted to be doing was helping people to have conversations with themselves that would allow them to connect with forms of physical activity that they get, 
that they are interested in, that they have a shot of being able to sustain. And that might be new stuff. It might be stuff that they have never done before, or it might not be stuff that they haven't done for 45, for 50 years. So my starting point in that book is really, in that self-help section, is really by saying, well, we come into this world as active creatures. As active creatures, we explore the world, we play, we do all of this stuff that we find we do because we enjoy it. I mean, kids are intrinsic motivation machines. Mm. You don't really have to ever reward a child to play. They will just go off and do it. But somewhere along the line, this enjoyment of physical activity gets lost. It could be in the teens. It could be in early 20s. It could be whenever. But, you know, it, it often happens. So I take the view that, you know, we are naturally motivated by exercise and activity. And so in the book, the self-help section of the book, it's about going back and casting your mind back to the times when you were intrinsically motivated in physical activities of some sort and to use that as a building block, as a basis for then thinking about, well, what would I like to do now? It's not just what I've, what I've always done. It might have nothing to do with going to the gym. Might be reconnecting with a very old passion that I just lost years and years and years ago. I think that's a better basis for starting to build something new. Mm. I think that's a wonderful way to frame it up because I think there are so many, you know, even just that thinking of us as if we're already active creatures, if that was the way we were born and that was the way we grew, then this is a natural, it, it really is taking the positive perspective, isn't it? You know, this is natural, this is in you. Yeah. You learn to be the other way, perhaps, but you can regain it. And what I like about this is that it's a conversation you can have with anybody, anybody. It doesn't matter what they're doing. And I particularly, you know, being in the business school, I see opportunities and applications for this within workplaces and organisations, senior executive levels. Anybody really is, we can have this conversation and start to think about well, what would you really like to be doing and how might that work? I mean, that's the sort of the, the starting point for me rather than prescribing something like, well, you've got to go out and walk three times a week to yeah. a moderate level of intensity, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. That's not yours. That's me telling you what to do. And motivationally, that's stuffed up. Yeah, it doesn't work. <laughs> right? Or it might work for a while. Yeah. It might yes. work for a while, but it'll go on the scrap heap of all the other fitness as soon as you're too busy or you get the flu or you... Exactly. You know, yes. Exactly yes. right. I, I just think this is a better starting point and I'm not necessarily seeing that be a dominant way of going about this. Mm. And our brains messes up a little bit in this as well. I know I was talking to a group recently, both about motivation and, and self-determination stuff, but also about, you know, applying that to exercise, because I think it is one of those things that we so often, so many of us, you know, because we know we should be doing it. Yep. So we know what the right thing is to do, but we can't, yeah, the shoulds, <laughs> but we can't do it or we don't do it. So that gap. And yep. for me, I know that when I'd looked at, okay, yeah, I need to do more exercise, my mind automatically went to, well, I either go to the gym or I go running. You know, for some reason, they were the two things that for me were like, okay, they're my options. And it was only when I started to explore, just as you've described yourself, you know, well, what are the things that I actually already love to do? Well, I do yoga. I've done yoga for 18 years. Do I, how do I incorporate that? Do I do more of it? Do I do higher intensity? You know, and then what are the other things that I love to do? Well, I just love to walk. So for me, you know, it's doing more yoga and more walking and then building on that. And sometimes putting a goal in and around, around that. So there's lots of different options now for this sort of thing. So if walking's your thing 
and you find yourself tailing off in enthusiasm a little bit, then then it might be time to put in some goal. Maybe yes. Seven Bridges Walk or whatever it might be. It's about playing around with all the tools that you have at your disposal to try and create something. But I think one of the other things that, that, that I've begun to really understand, I think, because it's been four years since I started running and I haven't missed a beat in four years. So that's been pretty striking. Even though I've been as busy as I've been ever. In fact, this has probably been the busiest year I've ever had and I have not missed a beat with my running. Now, why is that? Yeah. Well, I was sort of going to ask you, why is that? Well, (laughs) I think one of the reasons why that is, and again, the book has been instrumental for me in many ways because it's helped me think through and process what I've gone through and then also understand a little bit about what other people are going through. You know, in doing in, in writing that, that chapter again, the self-help chapter, this idea of a health or a fitness ecosystem has really framed up for me. And, and what I understood from it as I was thinking about why I'd been able to do this was that actually, yeah, I was putting in all the effort. I was the one lacing up the shoes and going out and, you know, regularly running, but it was more than that. There was an ecosystem in and around me that was helping me to, to, helping to support that effort or scaffold that effort. And that was things like, well, my wife and my kids taking an interest. My dad has an interest in running, so I talk to him. They're part of my ecosystem. I get stuff from them that supports my effort. The Gordy Six Foot Facebook group. Absolutely, interested people in there, and sometimes they comment, and sometimes they don't, and that doesn't matter. But they're there, and they're, they're there. Mm-hmm. There's people that I've met in running groups. There are running groups. I'm now a member of, of an athletics club. It's the first time I've ever been a member of an athletics club, and that is growing my ecosystem in interesting ways. And so, you know, I've mapped that out also in the book. And I think the thing about that ecosystem is it's dynamic. So if you're someone contemplating starting to get going again and you were to think about this idea of an ecosystem, then you could think about it as being you in the middle of a page, a circle with your name in the middle. And you can start to grow that ecosystem in a bit of a mind map-y kind of way such that there's people or there's devices or there's resources or other things in there that just grow and grow and grow to help support what you're doing. And for me, I think that's been one of the things that's helped me to stick in it. So I have people from the local sports clinic, the exercise physiologist, the dietitian, the physio who I've been to see at different times. Those guys are part of it, right? And at different times, that ecosystem for me has flared or activated in ways that have helped me to keep on going. Mm. I just think that when it comes to people getting started, thinking more systemically about their Engagement in it is pretty important. Who could be part of their ecosystem? Who needs to be part of their ecosystem? And purposely try to work to grow it in useful ways. For me, that's a bit of a critical one because otherwise the mental, you know, we can create this sense of it's me alone. Isolation, isn't it? Isolation, that sense of isolation is terrible. And I just did a marathon the other day, which didn't go so well. So I'm reflecting on that and trying to learn what went wrong. But one of the things that I got very clear about before I ran that marathon was I was noticing that in some of the longer training runs that I was doing, that I was actually a bit mm, starting to procrastinate. Mm, Do I really need to do the long one today? Actually, what that was about was I think I was just getting a bit lonely. Mm. I've done a lot of these long runs myself. Mm. Why? Yeah. <laughs> so I've already made a mental note. Well, you've got to stop that 
Otherwise, I'll start not doing it. And mm. so it's about connecting with my ecosystem again, the people in it, going, hey, guys, you know, I'm keen to run with a few dudes. Can we do that? And I think when I do that, the motivation will lift again. I'll learn more because you chat and you share information. You do a whole bunch of stuff. So I just think that the how we hold it in our head is really important. And I think that ecosystem idea, I'm going to write a whole lot more about that um, in the coming months and years because I just sort of see it as being quite a critical thing. And that's not necessarily particularly new. No, because I'm just thinking back, you know, Kurt Lewin and the behaviour is a function of the person in their environment, isn't it? You know, that's exactly right. And, you know, medical, sorry, um, health professionals will always talk about, and self-help books will talk about the importance of getting help or mm. getting support. But there's not often a lot that's said about that in a substantial way. How do you do that? What does that look like? How does that really function? And, and I think there's some nuance in there that people would do well just to connect with a bit to understand. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting when you were talking about that kind of systemic approach, you know, the first thing that popped into my mind was our elite athletes who we might send off to the Institute of Sport where they are thoroughly surrounded by an entire, as you say, ecosystem, you know, it, it would be almost difficult to, you know, you couldn't not turn up to training for sort of, I'm sure there are the occasional ones who doesn't, but, you know, it's that environment is, is so set up for them to be able to do their thing and yet contrast that to the average person who wants to re-engage with exercise or improve their physical well-being and then, yeah, just goes, well, I suppose I better go find a gym. I don't know anyone. I don't know anything. I don't know who these people are. I'm perhaps a bit confronted by the whole experience and yeah. I'm doing it all on my own, which is just, yeah, as you say, it's making it harder, that environmental element is not there. That's right. I'm doing it because I see other people do it or other people in the office do it or the magazines say that it's a good thing to do, go and do hot yoga or whatever, but actually it just feels crap and I don't really know why I'm here. So there goes another initiative on on the scrap heap. Hmm. I tried. It didn't work. Exercise is not for me. (laughs) Again, I think the intrinsic motivation place is the starting point here. If people really want to see it be sustained, it all comes back to what's your reason for wanting to do it. Mm. But there's so much that's happening at the moment, Alan, that I think is really cool, particularly around community-based initiatives for promoting uh, health and fitness. So, the most obvious one for me, because I'm a runner, is Park Run. And so Park Run is just, it's a global movement. I don't know, global movement, probably not too strong a way of putting it. 350 events and climbing in Australia. Uh, many, many thousands of people getting out every Saturday morning to engage in a free, inclusive, timed five kilometer run. Social? Walk. Very social, very inclusive. And, you know, they're doing really interesting research on it as well. You know, they're finding that people who start park running and becoming part of the park run scene, it starts to change their social identity and that they start to take on the, the normative actions of, of that group. So mm-hmm. for park runners, it's about, you know, you get some sleep and you, you have some, you know, you drink more water and you, you, you eat a little better and you think of yourself as a park runner and you volunteer as part of that as well. So there's this yeah. whole community network thing going on 
And that taps into so many things we know about well-being too, doesn't it? You've got the exercise, you're outdoors in nature, you uh, have the social connection, the identity, the community, the volunteering, yeah. <laughs> giving back, the meaning and purpose. Yeah. You know, it's, it's ticking all the boxes. It is. And there's other things being done in other areas as well. It's just looking the other day at an article that was published in the Annals of Family Medicine. It was only just a very short thing, but they were talking about running medicine and how collective groups are coming together to be part of sort of, you know, relatively informal but structured physical activity sessions that include getting some physical work done, but then also helping each other to maintain motivation in this group environment as a way of trying to of trying to help build public health. There's lots of really cool stuff being done. So it's not just all about running. You know, that's my particular thing, but there's many other things I think people could be hooking into if they just stopped and thought a little bit more creatively about what is it they want to do and why. Yeah, as you were speaking, I just I, I recently sort of on a bit of a whim, but as you say, you know, this is not about, it's not like we have these moments of realisation or we talked earlier about epiphany. So we have the epiphany, but it's a process that we go through to get from the epiphany to the doing of whatever it is. And so even from our conversation that we had, so you've played a part here, even in the conversation that we had in July Mm. and then a couple of subsequent conversations I've had with people and starting to think myself about what is it I need to do, that piece about longevity, that piece about living well into my 70s and 80s and then hooking in with local communities. So there's a, a fabulous girl here who runs physical, you know, workout like a boot camp sort of thing, mm. but lots of different options and different ways of doing it, particularly for busy mothers who have, you know, again, all of that stuff going on, but kind of building a bit of the flexibility around what's required there, you know, not trying to do things that overlap with school drop-off, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the things she did recently was just say, hey, here's a bit of a social activity. Let's go hike up a mountain. Mm. We're going to leave at 6 a.m. and we're going to drive out, you know, we're living in a regional area, we'll drive out to one of our beautiful spots locally, get together. And I didn't, I'd met her maybe once, I didn't know any of the other people, but automatically I looked at that and I went, and this was on a Facebook post, I went, that is what I've got to do. That speaks to me Mm. because it's social because I'd much rather be outdoors than indoors on a treadmill or something because I love to walk, I love nature, Mm. you know, and so as somebody who never does this, much astonishment, I think, of my family, I set the alarm on a Saturday morning for 5.30 and I was gone by 6am and I went and hiked up a mountain and it was just amazing. You know, it, it was such a good experience and, and motivating in itself to be able to do more. Absolutely. And you, and you get the satisfaction and the, and the thrill of that. And then you do it often enough, then you start to get a training effect and you start to get the cardiovascular benefit. And we, we, you know, we know an awful lot, or we know more now about the relationship between cardiovascular fitness and white matter integrity and how, you know, these is, these are things that help to ward off cognitive impairment and decline. So, you know, it's sort of like win, 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 win. There's, there's plenty going on there. And then if you happen to be outdoors, then we know from theories like cognitive restoration theory and empirical tests of those sorts of positions that time in the outdoors, time spent in nature, does a lot to reset 
the cognitive machinery. And many of the people listening to this podcast are probably knowledge workers. And this is all really relevant stuff. Absolutely. So there's just so much more upside than downside. But as we said right at the beginning, part of the problem is getting out of your own way and mm. stop believing the nonsense that we tell ourselves about our physical ability. And I guess one of the other things that I've been learning recently that I find really interesting is how we can get trapped behind false understandings of what we're capable of. So what I'm, what I'm really talking about here is if you look at what the world records for, say, swimming and running, and you have a look at the different age categories across world record keeping that's been done, what you see is you don't see massive declines in performance until about the age of 70. So obviously, there's a sort of a steady and gradual decline in how quick people can go swimming or running, but it doesn't really turn south badly until about the age of 70. And so I think that's really interesting because, you know, I'm 52 and I've just run my third marathon and I'm running almost as good now as I was when I was 20. I find this really interesting. And I can't yet necessarily see a hard ceiling on that, which means I, I think I've still got more improvement in me and I'm 52. Right now, 15 years ago, I might have thought that, yeah, 50, well, that'll be the end of a whole bunch you of stuff. You passed it. <laughs> I just don't see it. I, Alan, I just don't see it. And I think you see, if you pay attention, there's lots of older people out there doing freaking amazing things. And so the question really becomes is, why can't that be us? Uh, sure, some people will have injuries and things that impair their ability, but I don't know that that's the... I don't know that that's the majority. Um, I think, again, also we can put our own obstacles in place around what we're not capable of and sort of take the easy route out. So, you know, I, I'm just really struck by that. Mm, the stories we tell ourselves. There's still lots I can do as an athlete. Yeah. And I'm seeing other people do it as well. Um, it's all about, well, what do you want? What sort of life do you want to lead? Mm. God, and there's so many more things that I could talk to you about. Mm. If you had one or two tips for our listeners, and, and we've covered a lot of this already, but if you had one or two tips that you could sort of, you know, send them to go forth and thrive and flourish and engage in their physical activity or maybe whatever it is their goals are to, mm. to live a, a longer, healthier, happier life, what would they be? Uh, well, <laughs> Not to put you on the spot. Well, no, no. The only reason, <laughs> the only reason I sigh is, is, is that potentially what, what I'm going to say here might sound a bit cliched because we do get bombarded with lots of messages about this very question that you're posing. And sometimes it can come off sounding a little bit trite. But for me, I think in terms of my, in terms of physical health uh, and enjoyment of life, I would say have a new conversation with yourself. If you've been struggling to continue with physical activity on a regular basis, then have a new conversation with yourself and cast your mind back. You, you came into the world as, a, as an active creature. As a kid, there were really things you would have loved to have done and no one would have had to have encouraged you to do it. You just would have done it. What are some of those things? Have you engaged in any of them recently? Is there something that you've never tried that you would like to try? And just be bold. And have a crack. And if you're going to have a crack, then don't grind away at that for too long on your own because I think there's serious benefits to be had from trying to join together with others and connect and do things more collectively. 
Um, so, uh, you know, good example of that, dragon boating. You know, a lot of people sort of are keen on dragon boating. I mean, for somebody out there listening, that might be something worth giving a shot. Yeah. I know someone who's taken up roller derby in yeah. middle age. Yep. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I think it's about spending some time reflecting and thinking back into the past and then being a bit creative and imaginative. Mm. You also need to know where you're heading. What are you, what are you trying to get out of it? Yeah. What's it about? What sort of life do you want to have? I know what sort of life I, I want to have. I want to be running into my 70s. Mm. And if I'm not running, I need to pick something else and I don't know what that will be. It might be rowing, but it might be a bunch of other things as well. Who knows? Something else entirely. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So much in there. I think, you know, just so wonderful. One of the, the I think my favorite conversations that I have and certainly have had recently on the podcast has been with my experts who are actually engaging in self-experimentation at mm. the same time. So being able to really bring the science and what we know to life and putting it into place in our own lives, because I think that just makes such a compelling story for all of us. I really do appreciate your time, your reflection, Mm. your input, your tips, and all of that knowledge that you bring from many years now studying motivation and well-being and all of the science as well. Cool. No, I've I've enjoyed it. You know, I could keep chatting about this for a long time but uh, we haven't got that time but no it's we been it's been time. lovely not today so, maybe so, another day yeah I th- and i think we got to back to where we were when we met up at the conference so that's i think we did yeah i'm feeling the same feeling that i left that conversation with so that's an excellent sign goody <laughs> <laughs> thank you gordon so i have a challenge for you now following that conversation with gordon spence My challenge, and I'm sure that it's Gordon's challenge for you too, is to have a conversation with yourself about your physical activity. Not the same old conversation about how you don't have time or exercise is not for you. Have a new conversation. Get a little bit curious about physical activity and what it might look like for you. Maybe set yourself a little goal or get involved with a group. Take one small step and let me know what you're going to do. You can join in the conversation on Facebook or Instagram. Just search for Potential Psychology if you don't follow me already or drop me an email at ellenjackson at potential.com.au. And if you'd like a transcript of today's conversation or you'd like to find out more about Gordon and his work, you will find all you need in the show notes for this episode at potential.com.au forward slash podcast. There you'll also find Gordon's tips for reinvigorating your exercise. Big thanks today. Go to the Wellbeing Evidence and Horizons Conference for partnering with Potential Psychology to bring you this episode of the show. To find out more about the Wellbeing Evidence and Horizons Conference, which is taking place in Melbourne, Australia, in April 2020, head to weh.org.au. And who do we have for you next week? Well, let me ask you this. Traditionally, therapy has taken place inside a therapy room, a small space with room for you and your counsellor or your psychologist. But what could therapy look like in the future? What could mental health look like? That is the conversation that I'll be having with Dr. Jared White, a Melbourne-based psychologist and the co-founder of the Instagram account, The Lives of Others, which shares stories and builds community around mental health and mental ill health. And here's Jared to tell you a little bit more. 
I try to just connect with and be inspired by other stories and expressions of mental health. And we've received messages from people just saying, you know, they really valued being able to see that story today or just to feel uh, not so isolated. I think one thing that we try and do is just to learn about thoughts, feelings, emotions, behaviours, the body, the mind, our culture around mental health. So just having that conversation in many different ways from all sorts of different people, it also gives people a platform. What the lives of others is, is a place where they can have a voice. It's not about the words of psychologists, psychiatrists, it's their words. And I think that's really helpful. What it then does, the final one, is allows them to express themselves and express their mental health in the way that they want to, in the way that works for them. That's next week on the Potential Psychology Podcast. I am excited to hang with you again then. In the meantime, stay safe, go forth and thrive, flourish and fulfil your potential. Thank you.